From the Hydrogen Media offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I'm Andrew Leadham, and joining me from a few blocks down the road here in Washington is Patrick Malloy of the Rocky Mountain Institute and Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum, who's calling in from London. On today's episode of Everything About Hydrogen, we have Alicia Eastman, co-founder and managing director of Intercontinental Energy, joining us from her team's headquarters in Hong Kong. Alicia and her colleagues at Intercontinental are part of the global consortium behind the Asian Renewable Energy Hub, a 26-gigawatt green hydrogen project that will be the largest renewable energy project in the world at completion, with a total generation capacity larger than the Three Gorges Dam. Before we speak with Alicia, just a quick reminder that the Hydrogen Decade Virtual Summit, hosted by Inspiratia, is taking place tomorrow, February 17th. This is a full-day event supported in partnership with Black & Beach, Ballard Power Systems, us here at Everything About Hydrogen, and the law firm of Pinsent Masons. Chris, Patrick, and I will all be there joining panels, and Chris and I will be recording a special EAH interview segment live during the summit with Josipa Petrunich, the president and CEO of Cutrick. The summit is free for Inspiratia subscribers, but tickets for non-subscribers are still available. For ticket information, check out the summit website at www.hydrogen-decade-summit.com. Okay, and with that, let's get started. Okay, guys, we're back yet again. Great episode last time with Paul, but we're going to shift a gear, shift gears again, and we're going to go uh, over to the APAC region and have someone joining us from Hong Kong. Super exciting guest. Really, really, really cool stuff to talk about. But firstly, Patrick, how are you doing today? I'm doing okay. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering why yet again got thrown in in your intro, and here we are yet again. Uh-huh. Like, like, do you not love this, Andrew? Does, is this not the thing that gets you up in the morning? I, I am delighted to be here. It is a pleasure to be here. It is a pleasure to see Chris's face and the blank screen that always is the placeholder <laughs> in Squadcast for you. I've been meaning to notice the fact that Patrick somehow is able to get a functioning video when it's a conference, when it's like he has to or work makes him. And then anytime he's uh-huh. with us, it's just, it just never works, right? It's, it's magic. Uh-huh. Listen, you know, listen I've if you want to use Zoom or Teams or uh-huh. Skype or any – or the other one that I have trouble with is Google um, – Google's new... Uh... Yeah, Google Meet is awful. It needs to burn in hellfire. I just hate it. I, <laughs> I, I have so many issues. I love Google. I love Google Meet. And I hate this habit of people saying, here's my calendar. Go figure it out. It's like, no. Oh, don't make me go and do all the work to go through and find your thing. Like, Calendly is a perceived. I'll agree with that. I, I will. I will. I will defend Google Meet, but Calendly, that one, that one gets me. I'm with you on that one. Welcome back to everything about uh, communications in uh, the COVID pandemic. <laughs> your your right, co-host. Right. Touche, okay, Patrick. Touche. So, Andrew, in the context of where we are, where are you? Are you moving at the moment? Ah, uh, well, see, these are now these are common themes that everything about hydrogen. Uh, well, our landlord has decided to sell our, our delightful turreted apartment here in Logan Circle. So 
we are going to relocate. So, you know, if you guys have uh, Patrick, we may be coming, you know, we may be crashing your neighborhood soon. I don't really? have a turret, Andrew. Just, just, just in case the people listening in ever wondered what, what Andrew's kind of living around. You know, he has turrets. I, one turret. It, it's okay. a castle, basically. It is one turret. It is one turret. Fair, fair enough. I, yeah, I'm not going to engage on this. I'm not going to engage. Let's talk about. Let's talk about hydrogen. Let's- it's appropriate, I think, with a French partner to live in like a sort of chateau, chateau de. de- it is entirely Sarah's fault. She she now now that she's had a turret, she refuses to live anywhere without a turret. So you can imagine what our housing search looks like. Let's talk hydrogen, guys. Uh, Chris Chris Alicia is a dear friend or a good friend of yours, if uh, if I'm not mistaken. You want to uh, tell us a little bit about Intercontinental Energy? I mean, I know she'll walk us through it, but they have some super cool stuff going on. So what do you, what do we know about them? Well, I mean, I, I, I'd love to be a super cool friend of Alicia, but I mean, hopefully that will come more. Um, okay, let's say a, a good contact, a contact of Alicia's. Oh, well, look, uh, Alicia, what, what she's doing and what uh, Intercontinental Energy are doing is fascinating. And I think it's going to be a really exciting episode. Um, many people probably haven't heard of ICE, as uh, it's sometimes abbreviated, but they are responsible for a project that most people have heard of in the space called the Asian Renewable Energy Hub. Uh, and this is a uh, 25 gigawatt project, um, and I will repeat that, 25 gigawatt project, uh, combining solar and wind in a completely uh, incredible area in Australia, and basically using that to generate significant volumes of green hydrogen. Um, and it's a really, really interesting one because it's kind of one of the really big mega projects in terms of thinking about hydrogen as uh, LNG, I guess, in some ways. So thinking about the kind of export market and thinking about what that might actually start to look like for hydrogen. Um, it's also interesting just because they started such a long time ago, um, which also kind of adds to the interest I, I always have with this, right, is that people had that insight you know, many years ago to decide this is what we want to look at and this is what we want to do. And so I'm really keen to sort of get into the call and to talk to her about it and understand, you know, what the logic was, how they decided to, you know, put this together and, you know, uh, get into the sort of the weeds, I guess, around the project itself. I think it's going to be an amazing discussion. I'd like to, uh, I'd like to get Patrick's thoughts before we get Alicia on the line. Patrick, what is it that you're most interested in asking Alicia about? I think everything you just said, really. One of the, the, the common conversations here is, is around scale and, and design of market, right? So when we talk about these absolutely monstrous projects, the economics of them and, and how the, the project design changes the economics of the delivered hydrogen is, is probably one of the critical challenges that we have as the market starts to emerge, right? So how do you get low-cost delivered hydrogen to uh, end users or end consumers, right? Uh, so yeah, like this is, uh, you know, given that it is a, you know, tens of gigawatts capacity scale project, right? That's, that's absolutely, absolutely enormous. Why, why that scale? Why, why there? And, and what does that mean for actually, you know, advancing and, and, and reducing the cost of the, the, the delivered hydrogen? So, yeah, pretty fundamental questions, but like they, yeah. they're the big ones. Look forward to hearing the answer, too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Well, let's, let's see if we can get Alicia on the line, guys. Well, Alicia, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I'm just going to kick things off. I mean, I think the, the best place to start is, could you tell us a little bit about what does, uh, well, a little bit about yourself, but also uh, what does Intercontinental Energy do? 
Sure. Um, well, thank you so much for having me. Um, I guess I'll start. I'll start first a little bit with uh, intercontinental energy, since I think that's probably the most interesting to your guests, except for my mother. She probably thinks that's more interesting. But <laughs> um, <laughs> we are the largest developer of green fuels globally, and what that means and and how that sort of started. I, I think I can combine those together. And also a little bit about my background. So maybe I can answer that all in one big question. My um, background has mostly been private equity, um, some operations and direct investment and some getting involved with the private equity companies. So definitely from a board perspective, but sometimes more nitty gritty C roles and, and just getting more actively involved. I've spent the majority of my career in Asia, almost 25 years from all the way from Australia to Turkey and everything in between. So I've mostly been Asia and um, I've done a lot of infrastructure. I've done a lot of project finance. I've done a lot of big industrial projects, but also technology and renewables, um, specialty chemicals. I've done I've done um, pharmaceuticals, which uh, also led to specialty chemicals. And that actually has a pretty steep learning curve, but um, that, that was exciting. It was interesting. Um, and during this time, every time I looked at a renewables company, I would often ask a fellow named Alex Tancock for his advice on that sector, because he has been an expert in renewables for over 20 years. He's built some of the earliest wind farms. He's done offshore, one of the first people to do offshore. He's done work all over the world. And a lot of the private equity funds, um, in Asia and also um, banks, I've asked him for his advice, his outlooks, what he feels about what direction things are going in. And so we all sort of asked him for his feedback as, as part of the due diligence. So I knew him quite well. And in 2007, they released the satellite reports that showed where in the world you had wind and solar at the same time especially when you had wind uh, at night and when you had solar during the day. And Alex, when he saw these, he thought, these are the new, like, this, this is the new maps of the oil. <laughs> you know, this is, this is uh, the treasure map for, the, for a resource for the world. And this is going to be useful someday. At the time, it wasn't that useful because all of these locations that have the most amazing resources are in deserts, on the ocean, and they're very far away from any people necessarily. Generally speaking, they are um, pretty isolated. And although the costs of renewables had been dropping, it had not fallen to such a degree that it would warrant transporting that energy somewhere else. Then around 2014, the prices had fallen quite a bit more. And he approached me, Alex, had this brilliant idea that... Um, we would identify these sites that had the best uh, profiles in the world that were huge, big scale sites. We would get all the benefits of uh, capacity factor from having the combination of the diurnal wind and solar. And then you would also uh, take advantage of, of building good partnerships and, and having sort of the best jurisdictions and basically pick up these sites and find a way to transport that energy. There were now undersea cables and overland cables that could go quite a long distance without losing too much energy. And this seemed a feasible way for us to move forward. So he asked me to join him and uh, to be his 50-50 joint uh, venture partner. 
And I turned him down because I had too much to do and I could not uh, spend as much time on it as he could. So I joined him, but I, I said, you know, you, you've got to be the full-time person and, and this has to belong more to you than it does to me. It was, it was an argument back and forth um, of him wanting me to have more and me wanting him to have more. But at the end of the day, we agreed that, uh, that it's uh, on terms and we became partners. And one of the first things we did, obviously, was look at the world, look at the maps and decide what, where are the areas that we are interested in? What are the areas that are going to produce the greatest resource where we can access the land, where we can partner with the right partners so that we can work on these projects together and have that support on the ground? And um, one thing I left out, I've been working throughout Asia about 12 years ago, I uh, set up a, a merchant bank in Middle East uh, based in Saudi, and it focused on the GCC doing a lot of industrial projects. And I had a lot of connections. I knew a lot of people that knew a lot of people and I understood the way that financing and partnerships work um, in these different areas. And it's one of the reasons that in, in the Middle East, MENA regions, these have the greatest resources. So it was one of the reasons uh, we looked there as, as, as one of the areas for our, our projects. The first project that we set up was in Australia. Um, it's the one that you've heard the most about, I'm sure. Um, it's the uh, Asian Renewable Energy Hub. And that sits on 6,500 square kilometers of land in northwest Australia. We are partnered with the traditional owners. Um, we expect to have 26 gigawatts of upstream production. Uh, so we will have wind and solar uh, totaling 26 gigawatts. And having that size, having that extreme scale, um, both in terms of uh, the resource coming in at the right times, but also even the land size means that if you have uh, a cloud in the corner of one part of the land, it's not in the other corner. So you can actually reduce a lot of variability by just the size of your land. Alicia, just a quick one, if I may, because I think people uh, will hear that number and probably start scratching their head going, what on earth does that look like? Right. I mean, you know, so in England, we always reference Hinkley Point nuclear because that's three gigawatts. Right. So everything's framed as how many Hinkley points is that? Right. <laughs> but maybe, you know, so it's like how many nuclear is that? So, but maybe what you could do a little bit for our listeners, which I think would be fascinating, is give a sense of how much land actually is that? I mean, do you have a sense of like how many square kilometers or square miles actually is 25 gigawatts of renewables? You know, it's, well, it's 6,500 square kilometers. We're using the whole land uh, package. So six. Yeah. Okay. So six and a half thousand square kilometers of, of, and that's just the upstream. That's not the hydrogen production or anything else. That's just the upstream. Well, that's both. That's both. The downstream takes up no footprint. I mean, almost no footprint whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Chris, were you were you getting at the uh, that? I, so I'm sorry, Alicia. I, I think Chris, I saw an interesting uh, scale for the size of the project. Was it six six times the size of Hong Kong? Is that did I read that correctly? Probably Hong Kong's pretty small. Yeah, <laughs> okay. I was going to say well, you've got to pick. It's a, still a city. Pick, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I think our second project in Australia is about the size of Normandy. Give you okay. A, all right. Well, all right. So <laughs> I take it back. Maybe I wasn't getting as, maybe I shouldn't have been as impressed by that. <laughs> by the and, so you, and so obviously the scale is there. I, I mean, also just picking up a little bit. So I'm guessing you've you know, talked about the, the impact of GIS software and obviously I, you know, 
uh, things like the um, uh, energydata.info, which is one of these World Bank hosted platforms, has things like the Global Solar Atlas and the Global Wind Atlas. And that sort of GIS is invaluable. It's really useful. Oh, yeah. um, what is the, you know, if you're able to talk about it, what actually is the capacity factor that you can play on, given that you have that diurnal dynamic between PV and wind where they're running in tandem? Because, you know, the sweet spot that people are talking about is sort of 50%, right? Where you can get to 50% of an electrolyzer running on wind and solar. How close or far off are, that, are you from that? I, mean, I would call that the salty spot. We are above 70%. <laughs> oh, wow. So 70% for, okay, amazing. Okay, interesting. But then if you think about it, we're, we're over 70% uh, as a capacity factor from the upstream, right? Feeding into the downstream. But when you can have that higher capacity factor, and you can also do a lot of things to optimize the downstream to improve your utilization rates there as well. There's an interesting sort of methodology. I don't know if you've heard of, of these uh, rocks and pebbles way of, of building the, um, the ammonia unit. But your most efficient ammonia facility, like a Haberbosch unit, like if you want to run it and you want to run it as hard as possible and you want to be as efficient as possible, it should be as big as possible, right? Like you want to have the biggest one in the world. <laughs> this is the most efficient one. But if you only have one and you run into a problem, then that's pretty bad because if you have to shut that down or you have to stop it, to restart it is very difficult. It's the same difficulties you have with like you know, a gas, I mean, a, a glass plant or any any type of, of a huge uh, industrial facility that, that takes a lot to take down and take and, and uh, start back up again. So th the best thing to do is to have pebbles and rocks, have these really large Haberbosch units, have one that runs all the time. You never, never mess with it. And then the little ones that you can you can change if you need to, if you have any changes in capacity. If you have issues, if there's some kind of weather thing that's very short term, you can lower and raise that or you can even take it offline and not suffer too much. Um, so there's a lot of strategy in the optimization of the downstream as well. And the collective capacity factor or utilization rate ends up being dramatically higher than if you do anything from straight solar or straight wind. And actually, something we, we you ran into there, which you know is, is, I think this is this is the fun thing when you're talking with people who are excited about their projects, is they get into the gritty, which we like. But maybe a quick step back. So obviously, all this 25 gigawatts is going to create green ammonia. Hence yeah. Harbour Bosch. Hence the discussion around around that. Maybe you can explain a little bit why green ammonia. I mean, yeah. I guess there's some people in the industry who are like, well, that's a no-brainer. But actually, I think a lot of people would say. No, why are you making ammonia? What's the logic behind that? You know, why not LOHC? Why not cryogenic? Why not methanol? Maybe you can walk us through how you came to that decision, um, you know, and then I guess a little bit about where you see the opportunities as a result of having gone down that route. Sure. And, and actually, I would point out that uh, the permitting for our projects um, allows for both uh, liquefied hydrogen as well as ammonia. So we are keeping our options open. I think it would be fantastic if something develops that makes liquefied hydrogen a possibility. Um, the problem is that I'm staring at negative 253 degrees Celsius versus negative 33 degrees Celsius. And I, I was really good in physics and in college and high school. But <laughs> I haven't kept it up so much, but I, it's just not it, it doesn't really quite work for me. Um, so one of the main reasons is just how expensive it is to make liquefied hydrogen. You know, that, that is the main issue and the storage of it. The other options, when you talk about the um, LHOCs, the different options where you might add a carbon like 
with uh, methanol. Um, we have considered methanol. Um, the methanol is interesting because it can be at ambient temperatures, and that is slightly better than negative 33. So, you know, if it can be at ambient temperature, that is a bit better. We think that that advantage is less, though, than having an absolutely pure zero carbon history to your product, right? So what we're doing is we've got our upstream wind and solar we take the ocean water, we desalinate it, we use the electrolyzers to make the hydrogen, we take the hydrogen and we use the Haber-Bosch units to make ammonia, and there's not one carbon involved in that entire activity. We don't have to track it, we don't have to have, you know, special passports for <laughs> our materials, and and I think some people really want that. They, they would really like to buy something that is 100% green and not maybe green and a little bit green, and if you... You know, <laughs> it becomes hard to keep track of, I think, is, is one of the issues with methanol. I'm not writing off methanol, and, and I don't think a lot of people have written off methanol. Now, toluene. Uh, I've never been able to pronounce that one correctly on the first try. We're doing try, a chemistry yeah. session on all of this, aren't we? <laughs> Going through all the different structures, right? Maybe we need to do a 101 with Alicia and be like, right, can we walk through for people what the chemistry looks like? We, we might have that out because we can't pronounce it but <laughs> <laughs> has not stopped us before <laughs> the, the number one uh, problem i would say is that is is it's not even allowed from australia there they said no we're not gonna you know you're not you're not shipping that in and out anywhere <laughs> you're not gonna store it anywhere you're not shipping it anywhere this is uh is a no-go so um I think people were kind of interested in that for a while, but that has not come up. Except I did hear in one of of your podcasts, somebody was very excited about it. <laughs> but besides that, um, I think it would depend on the market. But in, in terms of Australia, at least, we have heard that that's kind of a no-go. The other issue with for us in Australia is we don't have access to a carbon to just pop in to our to to create any any of these sort of chemical structures. So, so in some of our other projects, we have other projects in the Middle East, Mina region. There may be a carbon that we can take from industry. We can use that and we can add it, and that make that may make sense. At least we're you know we're taking out the carbon out once. You know we're taking it out of the system. But uh, for now, we see such a huge market for ammonia as ammonia, not even ammonia as a, as a shipping vector, but ammonia to be used as ammonia, that it seems like the most obvious choice. Um, I, 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 again, you know, we may end up doing liquid hydrogen, like that this could happen. So I, I don't want to, to say that we are absolutely just dug, digging our heels in, but from what we know so far, ammonia seems to make the most sense. And certainly in the shipping industry, um, in Northern Asia, where they're going to co-fire with coal, I think ammonia is a very simple uh, choice. And uh, yeah, you're starting to touch on this, and so I want to dig into that a little bit more, Alicia. Uh, you know, what what do you guys see as the most attractive markets for green ammonia? You know, and, it, and you've talked about how you you see different possibilities for that evolving over time. But how do you see that market for green ammonia evolving going forward? Well, I, I think. Uh, definitely shipping is, is pretty attractive to us um, now. 
I, I think the IMO, which is, you know, regulates the shipping industry, they've established um, key targets for 2030 and 2050. Um, more importantly, there are about 120 shipping companies that have said that they they want to make even more ambitious plans. Obviously, one of the companies that's leading the pack is Maersk. They want to make even more ambitious uh, agreements for 2030 to 2050. And if you were to sh- take the entire shipping market and switch it to green ammonia, that would be 660 million tons of, of green ammonia a year. And just to put that in perspective, our very large project, AREH, which is will be the largest power plant in the world, <laughs> larger than Three Gorges Dam, that produces 10 million tons per annum of ammonia. So you would need 66 of us to serve the the, uh, the shipping industry. So from our point of view, you know, we really think there's no wrong answers. <laughs> In order to hit any kind of net zero anywhere, we we really need everything to work. We we need, I mean, we our biggest competition in shipping is going to be biofuels, but there's not going to be anywhere near enough of that, of, of biofuels to, to service the industry. You know, there's all sorts of different options and solutions, and obviously we want people to uh, use less energy. All of these ways to reduce usage of energy is also positive. But we literally need them all to work in order for us to be around in 2060. And and I'd like to be. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> and, and maybe, you know, shifting just a little bit to uh, a you know, slightly important part of the uh, equation. Uh, it, maybe you could tell us a little bit also about your guys' financing strategy, who supported your initial development work and who you're working with now on, on project financing. Sure. Um so we started out in 2014 funded by the founders and a founding group of investors. I guess you would normally call them friends and family, but they were, were just friends. Um, but all of the friends are professional investors in their own right. So they just invested out of their own pockets, but they actually run portfolios and they make investment decisions all the time. So it was a little bit closer to kind of having angel investors in. Um, because of their capabilities and and their help, actually, in in a lot of different ways. And we did a couple rounds with the same set of investors, adding in a couple more each time. And the last round, we had a a family office. Um, But we expect to announce relatively shortly in the next couple of months, um, we will announce a strategic um, slash uh, institutional investor, which is sort of taking us up to the next level. Um, As you know, development is not very expensive. Um, Most of what was required to get us to where we are today is knowing the right people, uh, knowing where to go, knowing the land that we wanted, uh, being nice people that people wanted to partner with, and working 24 hours a day. <laughs> it was it was not building out huge offices and tons of people and you know this it was mostly legwork um that that got us to uh, where we are. And then we also financed on the project level. So in each of our each of our projects we have project partners so who have equity participation. So we have investment sort of at each project level and then at the ice level, at the at the top level. We expect that, you know, when you hit FID, it will be a different mix of investors. It is it's a different animal at that point. So 
we have de-risked quite a lot to this point, getting 15 gigawatts of upstream um, approved in Australia and getting major project status. A lot of that is, is you know, de-risking. Uh, and the 26 gigawatts that we've submitted is we've submitted it, you know, knowing that we have solutions to anything that could pop up. And also it's the exact same land. So it's not like there's new environmental problems or there's any, it, it's just adding on the tiny part of the, the downstream, but it's actually the same amount of turbines because our turbines have gotten bigger. So from 15 to 26, the number of turbines didn't have to change. That, that sort of amount of development is not super high uh, in, in capital. It gets more and more um, in the next couple of years. And then, of course, at FID, these are huge amounts of capital. And this is when you have pension funds and you have sovereign wealth funds and you have all sorts of entities that are tasked with investing our money for our retirements um, who have realized that they should also be aware of our environment and, and making sure that, you know, oh, we will have a retirement. And, and I think that that's obviously you can you can see that from um, people are announcing all the time that they're exiting oil and gas and they're going into a green investment. And I think that for us, we're, we're not worried about the FID at all because there's just such a lack of large projects that are doing such clean, absolutely uh, wonderful projects. And the, the other point too, is that it's not just about the environment. Um, we are from an ESG perspective, we offer everything. We are off, we are, our, relationships with the traditional owners in um, Australia will be the best uh, agreements that have ever been signed. Um, so when we get to actually talk about what those terms are, it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, and for ARH, we're, we're building a town, a full-time town that will be there for generations. This is not like a pop-up mining town. This is a place where people will have jobs that that can help support their families, that will support ancillary businesses, schools, a whole town. And there's a lot of there's a lot of great ways to make that helpful for everyone because uh, it's it's good to have facilities on site to make a lot of the equipment because we will be building for years. And to have uh, some of the facilities on site is much easier than actually shipping it from different places. The other thing is that this sort of bus in, bus out, fly in, fly out culture is really harmful to families. It's also really expensive. There, there's a lot of ways that business has been done before with with big projects and especially around oil and gas and, and generally just big projects, any kind of big projects. Um, there's a lot of ways that it's very harmful to the people working there and to the communities around them. And actually, the... You don't have to give up uh, efficiencies or costs uh, to, in order to make that right. It's actually easier to just make it right and to actually have, uh, you know, a long-term um, town and um, businesses and jobs, high-tech jobs that are there for generations. And th that's how the traditional owners think. They want to be there for generations. Um, and, of course, that fits hand-in-hand -hand with how, you know, a green um players should think too. I mean, this is the whole point. <laughs> we are sustainable um, uh, across the board. So we think that there's a lot of demand for that. And especially when you hit the FID uh, phase, because at that time, everything's been de-risked. You know, you've, you've got offtake, it's underwritten. Um, it's a simple infrastructure investment at that point.
there's obviously a lot there to unpack. Um, so maybe we kind of, uh, you know, I think uh, maybe what I want to do a little bit more is kind of go through that development to FID um, financing discussion a little bit. And then Andrew, I think I think we've discussed before, we probably want to pick up a little bit on the supply chain piece that you were just discussing there, because that, that's also really interesting, given the scale, which is so unique, and the sheer volume that you're producing, what that actually means. So maybe if I start with the piece around the financing. So you know, obviously, as a developer, you know you talked about sort of uh, development capital relatively in the in the capital stack that's deployed on a project. You're right; is is a very small number. Uh, it is obviously the riskiest capital, um, the most speculative capital, and in that sense, it's sort of I guess sometimes the hardest to raise in many regards. Um, you know, maybe you talk a little bit about what was the proposition that originally got them in. Because obviously you didn't have fixed offtake, you didn't know quite how big the project would be, or all of those sorts of things. There were still a lot of moving parts, I guess, when first money started to come in. Uh, and then maybe you talk a little bit about kind of that evolution of how you then built up the the, the layered stacks of financing. Um, you know, and then you talked a little bit about FID. One thing I'd be interested to understand FID is, you know, I agree, there's a wall of capital there. There's so many investors that are sitting at the kind of five months out to FID at FID, and actually very, very few of them have any real competitive advantage. So the pricing is just getting driven one way because there's no value add apart from cost. Um, but how are you going to, if you thought about how you're going to run that process, is it going to be a single SPV that has everything? Or is it going to be, you know, each phase is a different special asset? Is Ammonia going to be separate from solar, separate from wind? So maybe you can kind of walk us through that story and the thinking as you've been going through that story. Well, I think for the first bit, I, I think we are talking about an integrated project. At ever, so each project, we're talking about an integrated project. So we're we're not planning to sell um, wind and solar to the grid um, or to a downstream partner that then makes the product and, and sells it. We are we have already uh, conducted a lot of really in depth engineering work on an integrated basis. And that's how we understand the benefits of scale and, and optimization of the whole uh, stack, basically. Um, so is that, I think that was your last question. I should probably start with your first question, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's all right. It's good. Yep. So maybe yeah, walk us through from, from the beginning, right? So what was the original story to investors and then how, you know, has the story evolved and how have you pulled in different layers of capital, maybe a little bit more detail around that? The original story was, in fact, a story. So, you know, we, we were writing very much on, on the reputations of my partner and I who knew the investors and who had worked with them before and we knew that they, we would give them a straight uh, sort of a straight story about what we thought was going to work. It was it was an idea. Um, we had connections. We, we knew where, you know, where we were planning to target. Um, and I think that they just trusted us that this would be um, something pretty exciting and they might be in on the cusp of, you know, something that was going to be uh, very different. Now, remember, this was before hydrogen became huge. So this is our first investor signed up to undersea cables, taking this this giant site in Australia, uh, producing energy at the lowest cost possible, and then piping it undersea to Indonesia and then Singapore. So that was a big risk because Indonesia is is a little bit difficult. Um, <laughs> it uh, it was um, definitely a big risk that it would happen. I think that a lot of them were felt comfortable because of all of the undersea cables for telecom. 
And everyone has seen those deals all over Asia before for the last 20 years. So I think that sort of made people comfortable that, uh, you know, these undersea cables have been populating all over the world again and again and again. And if you looked at a map and saw, you can just see it's covered with them. Um, so I think that made people a little bit comfortable just visually, like they could see it. Okay, you have the energy, you take it undersea, and then, you know, it's used in these markets. And so that's the basis on, upon which they originally invested. For each of the projects, there was an export market that had a high population and a high demand for energy that was close enough that we could get to with cables, either undersea or overland, but in most cases undersea. Um, so that was the original first few years. It became, I mean, as, this high, as hydrogen became more feasible because of the lowering cost of, of the upstream uh, energy because of the the cost of the wind and solar, everyone started taking hydrogen a bit more seriously, and it occurred to us as well. This is a much better way to get things around the world because instead of having a point A to point B, and you know having one buyer, we could p- potentially have the entire world as a buyer as long as we can find you know the right mechanism or the right vector. Uh, to get it, being able to ship is a lot better than an undersea cable from a from a risk perspective. So our shareholders thought, you know, that that is that makes sense too, and they they stayed with us. And um, our our last round actually, um, we didn't even have uh, one of our last projects yet. We uh, <laughs> it, it, we continued to deliver at a rate faster than they were expecting. Um, so I, I think that that they've been pretty happy. And um, and then we're now going to announce, you know, as I said, a, a more strategic partner and, and someone uh, a bit more institutional. And that that partner is or partners will be uh, basically for this time period taking us from here to FID. Um, so for that that period of development. And then, as you said, everyone and their grandmother wants to be in the FID of the <laughs> And just uh, just again for um, for sake of clarity, when you say from here to FID, feasibility's done. I'm permitting, I guess, and planning is almost all sorted. So, are we at feed, or what's the what's the gap, as it were? What's the what's the bit left to do? There's there's still feed left to do. There's I would say we're in between. Um, we are not quite feed, but we have done very in depth um, conceptual design. We've done beyond pre feasibility. We've done feasibility. Um, Obviously, of our own, but also using many, many third parties. So we do have we do have feed left, and that's one of the reasons we have a lot of time left. Uh, so FID is in 2025. But in terms of permitting, you know, we're pretty much there. Uh, when you when you do the permitting in Australia, you are working with with the entities, so that you're submitting something that it should be it is good. <laughs> so the thousand pages that we submitted to expand. Um, there, nobody's going to snorkel and <laughs> just say, oh, no, this is this is terrible because they've been working with us the whole time. And and there's no new issues because it's the same land. So obviously, we've already seen whatever issues there are. It's actually extraordinary. You guys um, are working in uh, England, at least, or in, in Europe. And I guess, maybe Andrew, you're working in the U.S. or on any... And I mean, we have had our project. It went up for review. Um, it's open to the whole whole public to make comments on for several years, in fact. And we got six comments. <laughs> six. If you've done anything, obviously, 
in uh, Europe. I mean, that is just insane, right? I mean, my, my partner was blown away. He was like, okay, where are the rest of them? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How can we possibly be this uncontroversial? <laughs> yeah. But, but we are. I mean, it's a great project for everyone. Yeah. I think it's fantastic for the state. It's fantastic for the country. Um, and I think, you know, it's even fantastic for the buyers and the countries of, of the buyers. So, um, yeah, we're, we're pretty pumped about it. <laughs> I guess you yeah. can. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I wanted to actually talk a bit about, you know, the scale and, and supply chain challenges that uh, that you guys are looking at. You know, so my numbers here, and I'm going to blame Chris if they're wrong, by the way. So, but uh, the scale of electrolysis you guys are looking at it is, uh, my understanding is around 12 gigawatts. For, is um, that? I think for, for ARH, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yep. Yep. It's a, you know, that presents a pretty, that's a pretty massive amount. Uh, it's a pretty massive scale. So, you know, can you tell us uh, a bit about how you see the deployments rolling out in phases? And then, uh, you know, also talk talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the supply challenges around electrolysis that you guys are looking at. Sure. Um, I think with electrolysis, it's not so much of a challenge as it is an opportunity. Um, obviously, the the wind and the solar are coming down in price, um, but not as much as electrolysis will. And um, I think, you know, if you have scale and you can offer, a, you know, a gig um, a factory to any of these major suppliers, they will all tell you, yes, we will build you that factory. Um, and it's it's not the problem that it is if you're doing a small pilot project. If you're doing a small pilot project, then you got to get in line with everyone else. But at the end of the day, scale is what's going to help these these companies. These electrolyzers need to get up to scale. And I think there was just an announcement. Um, I can't remember who made the announcement. I was just trying to find the um, article. But it is they're expecting themselves. Uh, they're announcing a forty percent reduction in their pricing. I don't know if you've seen this. ITM ITM Power announced that they will cut costs by forty percent. So usually that that does happen that these these companies will reduce the price as the scale goes up, but they don't usually advertise it in advance. <laughs> well, and Nell did the same, right? I mean, Nell also I think have been making similar papers. Um, you know, I guess I guess as you say, the question is, uh, what does that end up actually looking like, right? Um, you know, I remember someone saying to me t- uh, two years ago now that you could buy Chinese electrolyzers at $250 a kilowatt. And people were like, that's insane. That can't be right. Um, you know, so and that was two years ago. And so we're now seeing people saying, well, $400 or $350 a kilowatt for permanent alkaline by, you know, 2025, 2030 is sort of in the conceivable realm of reality. Um, but I guess the question is, have they been tested at the scale is, is as much as anything too, right? You've got to build them. You got to do them in phases, and they've got to work, right? Because I guess you're you're committing to one supplier for all your electrolyzers, or are you going to do several? Um, I, I think it's unlikely it'll be one supplier. I think that it'll likely be more than one supplier. They are modular. Um, they have been around a really long time. This is not a crazy new technology. This is this is this is Chris's favorite thing to tell. This he loves this point. So you're talking all the <laughs> big thumbs up from Chris. I mean, I mean, I'm sure you've toured some of the facilities or right, seen them in action, and like the the time it takes to um, even replace something that's not working, it's like milliseconds. It's it's really incredible. 
I'm, I'm not worried about electrolyzers at all. I would say I'm not losing one minute of sleep over it. And I think that we're including some of the reductions in costs, but, but you know, conservatively. Um, and so I think it'll just be upside. Uh, and I think it's obviously going to be great decades for electrolyzer industry because they're going to be creating uh, huge gigawatts across Europe, uh, um, Asia, uh, Middle East, uh it just, I mean, in, in Germany alone, it's, it's incredible how, how many gigawatts are expected. But yes, I think this will very much be a modular off the shelf, uh, you know, mass product. And maybe then, you know, so we've talked a lot throughout this discussion around kind of um, the excitement of the opportunity, right? And the various virtues and merits of the location and the approach and how you're going about financing and thinking about supply chain. Um Something that I think maybe we do need to touch on, um, and it's always important to touch on, is uh, is challenges and barriers, right? So, you know, what do you see as things that fundamentally might readjust and alter the way that you're looking at it? Because it is a huge scale and ambition, what you're trying to do. The timeline is long, you know, FID 2025. So, you know, what are the sort of things in the interim that you're looking at, which are kind of potentially concerns or barriers and you know obviously you can talk about how you're going to mitigate them but just i think good for people to see a little bit more of that context around as well sure i mean i would say covid has been a bit of a pain um (laughs) even so far just with and and we're not building out the projects you know we are uh we're doing wind monitoring and 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 a number of other things on the ground but uh it had we haven't started actual construction but if covid had happened during construction uh, that would have that that would be a wrench in the works i believe <laughs> you know there there are always things that can happen with major projects but what distinguishes our project um i think from a big oil and gas project or other major projects is there, there's not really a, a single point of failure is is one point it's it's almost like doing 12 little projects and in sequence so if you something is messed up in the first project and you can fix it and you can the you can make it right for the for each of the projects that come along because we build in phases and then each project builds in phases and each project can learn from the project before each phase can learn from the project before the other thing is you know our capex is like 60% off the shelf um so that's not a that's not a big issue we're not we're not expecting dramatic changes in, um, you know, capacities or or functionality of any of the major equipment. Uh, we do expect a step change for uh, wind turbines, but we expect it to follow the path that is always followed, which is, you know, you have something bigger offshore and then you take it onshore and it's not as complicated. And so it'll be a bit cheaper and a bit a little more streamlined. Um, but it will have a bit higher capacity like the offshore. In solar, we're expecting a very, um, you know, we're, we're expecting it to be deflationary, but we're not expecting it to have the past uh, 10 years kind of deflationary. <laughs> you know, by the, by the time that we're building, you know, we're only talking about 2% a year uh, going down. But because most of our expenses are deflationary, I would say 75% of, of, the, of the CapEx is deflationary. If you're delayed by a year, it's not a huge, uh, it's not a huge problem um, necessarily because it actually your your product is cheaper that you're you're buying. It's not a big enough difference to make you want to wait. However, <laughs> so you know we would we would like to get out there and be selling as soon as the market is ready. Um, obviously, one of our biggest concerns is there's a lot of talk 
and and whether you know whether that will be followed up with with actual offtakes and 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 actual um, buying. But the way that we're structuring is 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 based on offtakes. We've spoken with a huge number of people that want offtakes. Um, I think that takes a ton of the risk away. Obviously, the offtake will underwrite the the FID. And, you know, it'll be a lot like LNG started out, these sort of one-to-one relationships where it's bespoke a bit and you have a, an offtake with somebody and there's a lot of transparency and what you have so that they know you're not getting the best deal in the world and, and you know they're not getting the best deal in the world, but you're both making a market. And then as it continues to grow, um, you know, because we do have the largest sites, we do have the scale, we do have all of these advantages, we intend to be the in the lowest decile cost uh, um, in, in the world. Um, and so that will make us pretty competitive um, at, at any point. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, there's, there's not huge barriers that we're particularly concerned about. And, and we especially think that renewables are just so much less risky than, say, oil and gas endeavors. It's something that the market doesn't really recognize all the time. Because, you know, we're not going to put a lot of money into the ground and find out that there's no resource there. We've got five years of data, and we probably didn't even need that because the, these, as, as you said, this GIS and all of the, the data that's, that's free and is, is available is pretty close. It's, it's not that far off, you know. But uh, if you're doing other resources, if you're doing, um, you know, mining or you're doing uh, oil and gas, things can cost quite a bit more. And you can find out that you just don't have the resource you thought you would. Uh, and, and that's not something that's going to happen to us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry, Alicia. I didn't mean to cut you off there. I was talking a long time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Not at all. I just want, you know, we've, you've been very generous with your time. And I, I, one thing we've done is concentrated quite a lot on the AREH and uh, I mean, for, for obvious reasons. And, but I wanted to also, you know, give it, give a bit of a chance to, to talk about some of the other projects you guys are working on and uh, you know, recognizing that that you uh it is late at night for you uh wanted to kind of wrap there and give you a chance to to talk about other things that you guys are are looking at other things that you guys are invested in and and where you guys are going from here sure um areh is is our only project that's in the news right now but um this year we will be announcing a few more they are just a step behind um, You're giving us a, a lot of teasers, Alicia. You've got an institutional investor is coming on, so we're, we're going to have to we're going to have to have you come back soon. Yeah, yeah, we do have exciting things to announce soon. All right. Well, that was pretty long and wide ranging discussion, Chris. Uh, you know, as usual, we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, you know, Patrick seemed pretty particularly active during that uh, that discussion. No, but full disclosure, full disclosure, guys, Patrick was uh, there were some technical difficulties. Patrick was not able to join us for the for the actual interview, but he will be joining us for the debrief here today. So uh, but let's start with let's start with Chris. Chris, uh, what uh, what, were the, what were the big takeaways? Key key info, key points, highlights, you know, the full the full rundown. Uh, I don't think I could do a, a full rundown. Fair enough. Fair it, was, enough. it was very wide ranging. I, I think they're probably, insofar as a takeaway, I think one of the big takeaways is 
the scale of the challenge in getting to net zero. I think we've talked about it a lot, but something that really was mind blowing was when Alicia was talking about, you know, actually how her project or how, sorry, Intercontinental Energy's, um, you know, uh, is renewable energy hub project actually sits when you start to frame it right so she you know i think the number that she gave was you know you need 60 to 70 asian renewable energy hub projects to create enough green ammonia to decarbonize the entire shipping industry and it by itself will be the single largest standalone energy project in the world yeah that 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 maritime statistic was staggering staggering right? right because you then think aviation is about the same size as maritime right so effectively, that takes you to between 120 to 140 Asian renewable energy hubs to do six percent of global trans of global um, energy, right? And then you've got to figure that trucking's probably another you know six to twelve. And you start going down that chain, you just start to realize just how enormous the market is. And actually, I think this is one of the big problems that everyone always has: is we we never really grapple with just how large the oil and gas industry and the coal industry still is in the world today, how fundamental the transfer of oil and gas and coal to and various other petroleum products, you know, across the world uh, and across the world financial system really is. And so, you know, it, it is it is a really interesting, but also really scary thought in some ways, how much work there is ahead of us that, you know, this is one and everyone's really excited about it. And we need so many more of this kind of magnitude to start to really make a meaningful dent in the global numbers. Um, I thought that was fascinating. I think also it comes back to something we've talked about a lot, or I talk about repeatedly to people in government, because it's something I think is so important, which is timeline. You know, this project will reach uh, FID in 2025, right? And they haven't started the feed yet. They're completing feasibility, right? So, you know, it's worth bearing in mind how long these projects take. And, you know, the build out will take probably, I would imagine, if you spoke, if we'd had more time, you know, we're looking at a decade to build out that infrastructure from scratch, right? Maybe more. So you're saying that, you know, if we need to have essentially, you know, two, three, four hundred of these things or more, or more than that globally to be started to make a dent, you know, then the timeline for them to be up and running is 15 years from today, right? Which means anyone thinking about, hydrogen and investments in hydrogen now you shouldn't be sitting and thinking about well when is the market going to be active because the reality is anything of that scale you start is not going to be at full tilt until 2035 anyway and that i think is a really enormous takeaway um and it has all sorts of profound implications not just for you know the need and urgency to be moving quickly and the need and urgency to be starting to develop projects now but the need to also be putting in frameworks around what does export and import of hydrogen and green ammonia and other you know uh, green fuels that are derived from hydrogen look like there's really not been enough work around that and certify which is the eu standards is not really yet been widely adopted and i think that is going to be really important as a as a piece um, and then other things that go around that is what do we do until that time period, right? Because if we're saying that those big export opportunities are going to take that amount of time to come online, then actually what we're saying is that there's going to be a huge role for um, domestic production of hydrogen in the short run to build out that initial infrastructure and that initial demand. And so there's going to be a much bigger reliance on distributed production first to get the market to a point where there is demand. And then these big projects can start to come on stream and start to supply so I think, you know, that takeaway is really, really important from the call. And I think, you know, if we'd have more time, I'd have loved to go into what that also means for supply chain in terms of the electrolyzer manufacturers. She mentioned they're going to work with several, but, you know, what that means for scaling up and building supply chains around them. And if each project has to do that, you know, how you coordinate that in a way 
that makes sense. I think, you know, so many questions, but fascinating to go through it. I mean, Patrick, something that came out of the call I would have loved your opinion on was, you know, think about electrolyzer scale up. Yeah. Patrick, how do we how do we solve the need for, for four or five hundred uh, AREH size facilities around the world? How are we going to do that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, if it's, if it's 12 gigawatts in one site and, you know, there's two gigawatt factories for electrolysis in the world today, right, for PEM electrolysis anyway, you know, how on earth do you start even going about that conversation? And from the mining and mineral side, you know, how do we coordinate that as well? Well, you're going to need more gigafactories, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. Done. Full Mad stop. End, end of episode. End of episode. No, but like, like you know, look, I I appreciate the um the the depth of the question, but but you, like fundamentally, you're right, right? You've got a, a few gigafactories uh, available today. I think estimates of you know current operating um, electrolyzer capacity is somewhere between 250 and 350 megawatts, depending on some retirements and stuff like that, and and, and we're seeing. Projects being announced in the giga, uh, giga cell, uh, giga, uh, gigawatt scale. So yeah, we're going to have to have an awful lot more production capacity. It's going to have to, you know, increase year on year. And then, you know, I, I, I suppose the other, the other aspect that is going to come into this is about moving that around, design for, you know, building very large facilities, mapping it out against, as you flagged, you know, the duration to get up to scale, right? I think you said 10 years on the, on the construction phasing on it. But yeah, like designing for phase of these huge, huge facilities with, you know, the huge, and, and this is this is often the bit that people don't necessarily quite think about is that you're talking about absolutely monstrous renewables capacity being built out alongside it. So how do, how do you do it? Uh, well, on the electrolyzer side, you're going to have to expand dramatically and probably on the, on the renewable, um, on the renewables manufacturer side, you're probably going to grow pretty aggressively too. On the positive sides of it, you know, we're still seeing cost declines in, in solar, right? So there isn't necessarily, you know, this kind of uh, static pricing where it's going to cost you this much and this, you know, in two years, it's going to cost you the same. You know, if things keep going as they're expected to go, we're still going to see, you know, I saw a chart the other week with uh, the cost or the, the value of uh, uh, kind of uh, deployment, like the monetary deployment. For, for wind this year and the last couple of years. And the number is the same, but the, the actual installed capacity is, has, uh, or sorry, the installed capacity has, has, has uh, maintained the same trajectory, but the actual cost of installing it has gone down, right? You know, we're also expecting that for electrolyzers. And as uh, production capacity ramps up and as we get, you know, the, the technology itself starts to, to evolve and, and you start moving away maybe from, more uh, expensive manufacturing processes and you get get to scale and standardization you've got improved processing and and maybe you change materials or you improve the effectiveness or the efficiency of the the actual chemistry you get to see improvements right um, and that can could be rather substantial in terms of managing the cost but also simply put you got to put the thing in the ground which means we're going to need more right on the mining and mineral side most of these are mature markets, right? For for electrolyzers, you're not looking for strange and startling types of minerals, right? Like often it's quite quite standard stuff. Uh, so those mature markets are going to respond. 
you know, if we see movement away from, you know, traditional like internal combustion engines, you'll probably have additional supply there. I'm thinking platinum in particular, right? As we see the the move away from catalytic converter kind of um, resources, that's platinum, the platinum market kind of self-solving a little bit. Yeah. See, see episode, reference episode, season two, episode 10 of everything about hydrogen with Anglo-American, Patrick. Yep. <laughs> Sorry, but, just, but, but just plugging, but just an internal reference, you know, this is the internal plugging here. Yeah, but, but also then then we get into things like, you know, okay, so do we start looking at platinum group metals? Do you look at uh, the kind of uh, electrochemistry? Are there additional kind of um, kind of layering? And then, and then there's just system dynamics, right? Moving up the order and stack size as well and what efficiencies and gain you can get there, right? So there's, there's a whole heap in this, but fundamentally more. And that's, Really just what it comes down to. We're going to need a lot, lot more. Andrew, something I wanted to ask you, which I thought was fascinating, was, you know, there were two things that, you know, I didn't cover off at the beginning, but I do think stood out. I mean, one was the capacity factor, right? Which was, you know, I think Alicia was saying combined with solar and wind, they were getting a 70% capacity factor, which was just unbelievable as a combined. But what, what underpinned that, which I thought was the most impressive, was actually, you know, why were they in that area in the first place? And how did they find an area with that kind of capacity factor? And the answer is software. Right, it's GIS, and it was the fact that GIS maps created this kind of, you know, as they said, it was kind of almost like the new oil map of the world, right? Where in the world could you produce the lowest, most abundant renewable energy, and what can you then do with that? And I, I guess I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that, right? And how technology sits alongside these types of businesses, because clearly, in some ways, you have to build something physical, right? So technology is great, but you still need to build the physical assets, but. You know, the fact that actually they're even able to build this was because ultimately software helped them to get that angle and perspective on where they could and should go. And, and I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. No, I mean, I think it's a it's this particularly interesting point, right? But like, I think where that discussion was like most notable and what I, and uh, Alicia touched on this was a really good point is that in the energy world, right? I mean, traditionally, uh, so this kind of project uh is going to be significantly cheaper in terms of upfront investment in in this in this very particular in this very particular but important sense, right? Oil companies, as we know, spend a lot of money drilling holes to find a resource that they think is there. And granted, don't get me wrong, they're some of the best, you know, some of the best geologists and tectonic plate tectonic plate scientists. Tec- you know, whatever they are, some of the best scientists in the world work at, at oil companies and they make pretty good educated guesses about where they're going to find oil and, and they're getting better and better. But to a certain degree, that's a crapshoot. And there's a lot of money going down the drain, digging dry holes. Right. And what I think uh, Alicia's point here is, uh, and it's really well illustrated by their 70 percent capacity factor, is that that GIS data that we basically, in a lot of senses, already have, and you know, these are deployed uh, technologies. So we have weather data uh, and resource data for the you know middle of Australia, even though there's nothing there. We have this uh, this GIS data. So a company and that and that GIS data, standalone data, is already pretty accurate. And that's what Elisa was saying, right? I mean, they still have to a company like ICE has to go in and fund an actual environmental study and get the you know the hardcore data that they can take to investors and take to you know take internally and do their modeling but that GIS data is pretty good to start with right so there's a lot less upfront cash 
lost just looking for locations and places where they're looking for the for the energy resources they need. And I think that's super interesting, right? Like that that's a bit of a game changer for the energy world. I, I completely agree. And actually, you know, the thing that's amazing is that it came back to, you know, I, I remember the World Bank, the World Bank is the custodian of something called energydata.info. And it's a free site and it has access to the Solar Resource Atlas, which is a global GIS platform for solar and the Global Wind Atlas, which is a global... Did we, did we perchance use that in Professor Marco Delacquila's... Uh, uh, project finance, renewable energy project finance. Class. Probably I, did. I certainly yeah. remember working. Full, on full disclosure to the to all listeners: Patrick, Chris, and I all had the exact same professor, and Chris and I were in the exact same class uh, <laughs> with the well, same professor. Another disclosure: that professor is my CIO. <laughs> so yeah. there you go. Good point. Good point. Very good. Point. Um, but 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 all I was going to say was, you know, so it was interesting because even you know, uh, five years ago, four years ago at the bank, um, you know, you could basically go and look at a country and see where, you know, with reasonably good accuracy, what the solar potential, what the wind potential would be in areas. Uh, some, some organizations, including the bank, actually have data on where transmission lines are. So they know where transmission capabilities are. They actually did also work on, you know, transmission lines and microgrids in places like Nigeria. So you could literally, as a developer in developing countries, you know, start with, you know, exactly where the solar resource is, where the wind resource is, where it makes sense to be a private off-grid network versus on the grid because and changing diesel prices. So GIS has transformed that piece of the development story. Absolutely. I think you're hundred percent right, Andrew. And I, well, I haven't put it together, but I think you absolutely hit the nail on the head is what does that actually then look like? You know, if the new energy majors of the future are going to be electricity driven energy majors, right? I mean, maybe electricity into green fuels, but their raw material, if you like, is, renewable resources solar and wind um you know there is a massively de-risked business model there to your point right yeah, you don't need yeah. to have a team of geology yeah, i mean just imagine just imagine if if exxon didn't have to spend billions of dollars digging dry holes around the world well but it's, it's really interesting then isn't it because it also suddenly means if you're a government and you're auctioning tenders right i mean you know think about oil and gas tenders that all these countries run that are very lucrative yeah, it's very difficult because it's always a gamble. No one knows what these resources are actually going to be worth, if you're going to find them or not. You know, every country in the world now will have Chile, Australia, South Africa, uh, Morocco, which is some of the best known ones for, you know, solar and wind, for example. They know what the land's worth. They know what the resource potential is there. And actually that kind of, interestingly enough, I wonder whether that de-risks from an investment perspective, longer term for these mega projects, a lot of the energy system and actually would take a lot of the volatility out of the energy market. And as you said, at the beginning of the conversation, you know, energy is such a massive part of the world we live in today and such a massive part of the financial system. If it's de-risked because it's slightly more predictable, you know where there's sun and wind as opposed to, you know, are you going to hit oil or aren't you? Does that actually have really profound implications for all sorts of things through the wider energy system? But I mean, that's that's probably a whole two three hour combo for another day. I think intuitively, I think the answer is a hundred percent. I think we can safely say it does. Right? Smarter, smarter people than myself are going to have to address exactly what those implications. And myself, are. Andrew. Yeah, they will. <laughs> so, so, yeah. So, Patrick, if you wouldn't mind, just uh, yeah, to walk us through. Walk us through what that's going to look like. Yeah, well, one one thing straightforwardly is if you've synchronized solar and wind generation, then you guys haven't solved your your problem. You haven't, right? So you can have a good wind resource and a good solar resource, and if you get a good alignment with them, you don't have an optimized high capacity uh, system. You've got 
the, the single kind of capacity factors on each of them generating at the same time. So there's an optimization and a design feature to this that is a lot more complicated. But if you manage to align them and you do a little bit probably with some batteries or other storage resources as well, you can get very, very high capacity factors. And that's how you get up to a 70%. So yeah, that makes sense. But it's, it's, it's very much a case and it's quite complex to design and optimize those systems. So yes, can be done and you're not wrong. And the optimism is appropriate, but also um, there are some challenges. Sure. I don't know if you can see me rolling my eyes at you raining and Chris on Chris's and my parade yet again, but I am. In case you can't see that, you keep me here for right. But I, uh, but I, that is I, exactly I, exactly right. But I agree with Patrick. Optimization is really of course. Um, I mean, you know, and it's but the resources alone are staggering. I mean, I think uh, I remember when I was in DC, uh, there was a guy called, uh, and he's he's still quite well known now, or is very well known now, so called Byron Siverham, who worked for the Council on Foreign Relations, I think, at the time, and uh, he wrote a book called Taming the Sun. Um, and Taming the Sun, I think his his assessment was about a third of global energy could be from solar PV by 2050, um, you know, which is actually, to think about that for a second, is saying, you know, effectively the global oil industry, you know, the amount of energy that the world gets from oil could just be provided solely by solar alone, which is a staggering number. And within that was, you know, a range of things. Some was conventional PV, some was concentrated solar power, and actually increasingly looking at things like, you know, um, direct production of hydrogen using solar PV. You know, and I'm starting to see friends of mine sending me, you know, links to interesting companies that do that as well. Um, but Patrick's right. There's definitely an optimization piece and, and probably a little bit of a technology maturity piece around it. But the potential is definitely there. And I think, you know, uh, in some ways, maybe is a good place to end it. I, I, yeah, I think it's fair to say that GIS has not entirely de-risked the energy world. Let's, <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's a fair way of putting it. I think it has shifted where that risk lies and it, it, it makes the risk, obviously, uh, it's a different profile risk, right? And it sits at a different place in the investment stack, if you will. But, you know, I'll let you guys, uh, you know, noodle that over and maybe we'll, we'll discuss it in further detail on the next episode. Yeah. Looking forward to your insights, Andrew. <laughs> I didn't say that. They're not going to be my insights, Patrick. They're going to... That's your assignment to go home, think about it, and give me the right answer the next time back. And I, have, I have the answer. I just want to make sure you get it right. That's I'm just that's what I'm trying to get at. And Patrick, next time you owe us a uh, steel steel client. Next time. Next time. Oh, okay. Wow. Shots fired. Shots fired. Okay. We'll, yeah. see, we'll see what we can do for. You. And that does it for us here today at Everything About Hydrogen. A big thank you to Alicia Eastman, co-founder and managing director of Intercontinental Energy, for making the time to join us on the show all the way from Hong Kong. Thank you, as always, to Chris and Patrick for their masterful co-hosting abilities and hard work on the show. And as you know, we'd love to hear from our listeners here at Everything About Hydrogen. If you have any questions for us or our guests and would like to get in touch with us, please send us an email at info at h2podcast.com or find us on Twitter at, at About Hydrogen. Lastly, if you enjoy the show, please do leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us promote the show and reach a larger audience. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time. <laughs>